So we've been doing a little series on discerning the will of God, and this is the sixth message on evaluating popular methods of discerning God's will. And today we'll be dealing with the still small voice. But just to go back last week, I talked about hearing the voice of God in, in an audible manner. And just in the course of this week, I saw this story headline. A false female pastor with the PCUSA, that's the Presbyterian Church USA, it's an apostate denomination, who is also a Planned Parenthood advisor, delivered a sermon in which she said she felt God's presence when she aborted two pregnancies and, and blasted evangelicals for their toxic theology on the subject. Well, we all know that it wasn't God's presence that she felt. Maybe a demonic presence or maybe just the eventual fruit of a reprobate mind and a hardened heart. But another, another headline caught my attention relative to the subject. Texas pastor Ryan Binkley isn't only on a mission for God. The preacher and businessman has also decided to run for president, with his faith distinguishing him as a unique candidate. And the headline of the article I read said, God really spoke to my heart. Did God really speak to his heart? And if so, how did he communicate that specific revelation to this pastor that he should run for president, although he has zero chance of winning? Well, I watched an interview with him that was online, and, and he said he had a dream about seven months ago, actually a series of dreams, that he was going to run for president. And then he began to receive messages from God on what his platform was to be, what he was to focus on in his campaign. Very specific messages. And he said he had been having dreams for a long time. Well, a little further research turned out that he is a prosperity preacher who co-pastors create church with his wife in Richardson, Texas. So I don't think we will see him winning the nomination for the presidency and, and the uh, becoming president. But we looked last week at a couple false assumptions that I presented to you from Jim Osmond's book, God Doesn't Whisper, and I'm elaborating on those. False assumption number one, for a really deep, meaningful spiritual life, you need to hear from God. That's false assumption number one. Number two, you should expect to hear from God. That follows logically from the first false assumption. If there's something you really need in your spiritual life to have a vibrant relationship with God, then you should expect that God is going to fulfill that for you. And we looked at the go-to verse of people who claim this position, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's in every single book I've read on the subject. My conclusion was that in context, John 10, 27 has nothing to do at all with receiving an individual word from God. It applied to believers, primarily Jews, in the Old Testament, who heard the voice of Jesus when he came in that transitional period, because they had already heard the voice of the Father in the Scriptures, pointing to Jesus as the one that he had anointed. 
John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's the key of understanding this verse. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me, Jesus said. And that takes humble and, and receptive hearts. And that's why Jesus said in John 5, 46, if you had believed Moses, the Old Testament scriptures, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you did not believe his writings or do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Which they didn't. So here's false assumption number three. If you need to hear from God and you expect to hear from God, then you must learn how to hear from God outside of Scripture. But the Scripture is absolutely silent about learning to hear the voice of God. Now, you would think that the elders, the pastor, teachers, and the deacons of the church, the leadership of the church, would have received from some instruction on such a vital matter. But they didn't, nor did anyone else in the New Testament. So I gave you this quote by a New Testament and biblical language scholar, R. Fowler White. I'll give it again because I think it's, it says a lot. The Bible gives us no reason to expect that God will speak to his children today apart from the scriptures. Those who teach otherwise need to explain to God's children how these words freshly spoken from heaven can be so necessary and strategic to God's highest purposes for their lives when their father does nothing to ensure that they will ever actually hear those words. And the great majority of Christians, down through time, living very ordinary lives for the most part, have never heard the voice of God. And even in the New Testament church, the early church, 1 Corinthians 14.32 says, when prophetic revelation was still active, that the spirit of the prophets was subject to the prophets. In other words, there was a divinely instituted control over revelation, even when it was occurring in the church for that temporary period of time. And even with the gift of tongues, and tongues was languages, there is not a single instance in the New Testament of any private use of tongues. It was in the church, and it was also regulated by the church. And furthermore, it was assigned, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14.22, to unbelievers, not believers. And that is exactly how it functioned on the day of Pentecost, when people came to Jerusalem representing many different ethnic groups, many different languages, they heard them in their own language. And I think God was signaling that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel would eventually go out to all the world, to all people groups who would hear his word. So it, it's striking to me that, that men training for pastoral ministry in seminary do not take courses on how to teach people to hear from God. I've never heard of it. But that idea has fostered an industry of books, conferences, and pastors buying the books, 
to teach their people how to do it because they never learned how to do it. And in one advertisement for a conference on experiencing God, Henry Blackaby, who was a catalyst for this movement back in the in the uh, early 90s, he was a he was the speaker, and the the pro promotional announcement simply read, "Come hear a man who hears from God." Advertising works, folks. Who wouldn't want to go hear a man who hears directly from God? I think that much of the current emphasis on God's continued revelation is based on emotions. It's based on feelings. It's based on impressions, which cannot be proved as coming from God. Therefore, they cannot be trusted as we trust the scripture. And I'm not saying that people put that on the same level because they, they don't. But I think we should clean up the language that is pervasive in Christianity that is subjective, feeling-oriented type of a language. So I'd say to you today, be careful in saying, I was led by the Spirit. I can't tell you how many times I have heard that. If you are referring to something that you felt on the inside or otherwise, Romans 8.13 says this, For if you live according to the flesh, your sin nature, right? You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The context is about sanctification. And we know that true believers are being sanctified day by day by the Spirit of God working within them. Galatians 5.18 says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You were saved by grace, right? You're sanctified by grace, not by the law. As you submit to the Word of God and the control of the Holy Spirit in your life, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Holy Spirit, submit to Him. So Ken Harnock, in his little in an article he wrote, says, does God give subjective revelation today the place of mysticism in Christian decision-making? This is in one of the theological journals that I have and read. He says, neither of those passages that talk about being led by the Spirit, Romans 8.14 and Galatians 5.18, neither one of them have to do with guidance or making decisions. Both of them contrast the lifestyle of fleshly desires with a lifestyle of godly living. They both deal with sin and sanctification, not, not some feeling you have. When I preached on Romans 8, 14, here's what I wrote. I went back and looked at my notes. Now, I didn't even have the series in mind at that time. Being led by the Spirit in Romans 8, 14 is not speaking of particular guidance in the affairs of your life but rather the Holy Spirit being instrumental in leading you to the destination that God has intended for you as his adopted child, from salvation to sanctification to glory. That's how I worded it. It pertains to the direction of your life as a whole. God did not leave you on your own, and you are not passive in the process. You must be filled with the Spirit. Controlled by the Spirit, you must surrender to the Spirit. 
Psalm 25, 9 says, The humble, he guides in justice. I love that. Did you like that psalm we read this morning? The humble, he guides in justice. And the humble, he teaches his way. You won't learn anything from the Lord, really. You get a lot of head knowledge. But if you, if you wanted to change your life and your heart, then you have to humble yourself before the Lord. Psalm 25, 14 says this. I love this verse. The secret. The secret. The Hebrew words means counsel or intimate fellowship. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. The idea of the covenant there means his pledge, and I think it means his faithfulness. And I, I think it also means, in terms of the covenant, the, the divine ordinances that God had given to the Old Testament Israel, the right path to walk. And that's why Psalm 25, verse 4 said, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your what? Your paths. Lead me, lead me in your truth and teach me. I love that. That is a godly Christian's prayer. Lord, show me your paths. Lead me in the truth and teach me. Boy, if we prayed that every day, what a difference it would make, right? I mean, you can memorize those verses, Psalm 25, 4 and 5. Memorize them. Pray them. Listen. One of the best things that you can do in your life is pray Scripture. It really is. I would tell the young people, if you want to see God make a difference in your life, start praying Scripture. Start saying the Scripture back to Him and then ask Him, God, help me. Give me the strength to fulfill this word which you have written for me. Now, in order to do that, you have to hide the word of God in your heart. Because you're not always going to have your Bible with you carrying around. So you, so you, need, a, you need scriptures packed away. And when you come into situations, you can pray the scripture. And you could ask God to, to work in the particular situation that you find yourself in based on the promises of his word that he has given to you. So the bottom line, when we think of those verses and being led by the Spirit, there, there, is, there is no hearing the voice of God. There is no inner impression or divine nudge in, in those passages dealing with being led by the Spirit. Now, number two on my list of evaluating popular methods of discerning God's will is listening for God's still, small voice, his whisper. Zechariah said this in chapter 4, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my, what? Spirit. So God does not always need to exert his power to minister to his servants, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So for this, this portion of the sermon here, we need to go to 1 Kings chapter 18. And because you're very familiar with this story, I would hope, don't tune me out. I'm not going to read 1 Kings 18. Just to tell you this, it ends on a high note for Elijah. He just had a tremendous victory over the false prophets of Baal. 450 of them were put to death. They were a plague upon Israel. 
So he goes from this, this triumphant scene there on Mount Carmel. And let's read what happens afterwards. 1 Kings 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel, that, that wicked woman, sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. And when he saw that, right, heard that, he arose and ran for his life. And how do you do that? You confront 450 false prophets and you run from a woman. And he went to Beersheba. And that's not an insult to women. I'm just, I'm just making the, the contrast there, okay? He went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree. Whatever that is. I didn't look it up. And he prayed that he might die. And he said, it's, it's enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I call this from the thrill of victory to the despair of defeat. Elijah felt defeated at this moment by the threats of one woman. He feared for his life, and he would rather God take him than die by his own, or by the hand of Jezebel. Look, he wasn't suicidal, but he was in despair. He fell into despair. But look at verse 5. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel. The word, the word translated there is messenger, really. That's what angels were. Sometimes they're theophanies or, or Christophanies, Jesus being the angel of the Lord. But touched him and he said to him, arise and eat. He looked, and there lay by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. That's amazing, isn't it? So he ate and, and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Listen, I have news for all of us here today. The journey of life is too great for any of us. It's too hard for any of us to manage. We need the food that God provides in his word and the living water and the rest he provides in fellowship with him if we are going to make it to the end and say like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Look at 1 Kings 19, verse 8. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. They don't sell any of that anywhere today, so don't, don't go looking for it. As far as Horeb, the mountain of God, and there he went into a cave, and I have to wonder if this is the same place where God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. I don't know. 
But he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the the fire, a still, small voice. Now I need to point out the obvious. The still, small voice was not an inner voice or impression. It was a voice. It was a voice. It was not a thought in his mind. It was not a feeling in his heart. It was a voice, the voice of God. But here is how Pastor, when Pastor Frank and Torah described it. An inner witness. Yes. An inner peace. This is how he's describing the still small voice that people could feel. An inner peace. Okay. An inner nudge. Get moving. And that's usually your wife's voice. An inner check, stop, an inner green light, go ahead. Does this sound like anything you see in the scriptures? Dallas Willard said this, it's also significant to note that the gentle voice of God, the still small voice, can be overlooked or disregarded. He writes that it may be possible for someone who regularly interacts with the voice of God not to even recognize it as something special. You regularly receive this, but then there are times when you just overlook it or you don't even recognize it as something special. That's not very reliable. But it gets worse. Online Ministries article says this. I don't have the author's name. Knowing the voice of God. The still small voice. If God is his word and words are simply the communication of thought, then the still small voice of God doesn't have to be sound. You may actually hear nothing with your ears, but you will understand what God is communicating in the form of words. That's right. You can hear no sound, yet still understand what God is saying. Not only Will you understand? You will understand it in the form of words without sounds. And then it was a female. says, yes, I know that may be confusing. Yes, I am confused to some of us. The truth is that if you have never experienced it, then it may be very hard to grasp. So you hear words without sounds. That's not Bible. That's mysticism. That's that's what Hindu gurus do in their meditation. But I remind you again that Elijah heard a voice. He didn't hear words without sounds. He didn't hear an inner witness. He didn't get a divine nudge or feeling. And the first time the word of the Lord asked the question, verse 9 and 13, the second time the voice of the Lord asked the same question, 
verses 10 and verse 14. Sometimes we don't get it the first time. To both the word and the voice, Elijah gives the exact same answer. Furthermore, I need to point out that this was not the norm for Elijah. He heard God speak before this. He would hear God speak after this, but never again in this way, in a still small voice. As a matter of fact, the still small voice never again happens anywhere in the scripture. So it should not be something that Christians should be looking for or trying to, to hear. This is descriptive of what happened, not prescriptive, that we should be listening for God's whispers. And I pointed out last night or last week, you need to distinguish between what the Bible describes historically and what the Bible prescribes, proscribes, commands. Listen, Elijah did not have to tune his spiritual hearing aid to hear the still small voice. Listen, if you hear me on anything, hear me now. There is a great danger in the selective use of biblical data. If you know what I mean by that, if you don't, please talk to me afterwards. There is a great danger in the selective use of biblical data taken out of context. It becomes a pretext. Listen, if you use a drill, to hammer a nail, you will batter that drill and you will abuse it. If you use a Bible verse for what it wasn't intended, you will batter that Bible verse and use it. And Christians today, they batter all kind of a Bible verses. They take them out of their context. They use them for what they were not intended by God. And that's always, always bad. The wind, the earthquake, and the fire. Now, that would have captured Elijah's attention, right? It's interesting. It was natural phenomenon that God supernaturally directed to announce his presence in a dramatic way to Elijah. It announced his presence but then God spoke in a way that Elijah needed to hear in a still, small voice to him. That's how he needed to, to hear from the Lord at that time in his life. Don't expect to hear God's still, small voice. You and I are not unique prophets of God like Elijah. We never had a Mount Carmel experience in our life, and we never will. We don't do miracles like Elijah did. So don't expect this to apply to you. But here is what Christians can always expect. The Christian can always expect that God is going to deal with them in love as his children, who meets them where they are at and confronts, consoles, and sets our thinking straight. And his written word has the power to do that. Sometimes it hits us really hard, right? And sometimes it gently rebukes us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful. 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God can, word can reveal things in your life like nothing else or no one else can. You know, in near the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul told Timothy that the scriptures, he said, are, are profitable. They're useful for teaching Timothy, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So there in his final letter to Timothy, what, what did Paul point Timothy to? What did he point him to? He didn't give him advanced training on receiving personal revelation. He pointed him to the word of God. And he says, this will perfect you. This is all you need, Timothy. I want to, I want to get away a little bit from that subject now. I want to go to back to the text in 1 Kings 19, verse 13. Elijah's discouragement. Because I venture to say that there might be somebody here today who's discouraged. Or somebody who has been discouraged. Or somebody who will be discouraged tomorrow. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for your Lord, for you, the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Here is how Elijah saw it, all right? He felt like his prophetic word amounted to little. Poor self-evaluation. Secondly, he felt like he was alone in serving God. Self-pity based on a lie. Number three, he felt like he was a marked man. Faltering faith. The God who gave them the tremendous victory against 450 false prophets can't continue to protect his life. So here is, here is my takeaway. When you are feeling despondent, down, in despair, never trust your feelings. That's because it's hard when you're in that state to be very objective. Here's the reality of Isaiah's situation. I saw this already in verse 15 through 18. Elijah needed to, 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 to move on from where he was. Do you know where he was? Pilgrim's Progress, the castle of despair. If you've never read it, read it. If you have never read Pilgrim's Progress, read Pilgrim's Progress. There's a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress, and it's wonderful. What do I give my kid children for family devotions? Pilgrim's Progress. It's full of scripture. The castle of despair. The Christian found himself in the castle of despair. There are a lot of Christians in the castle of despair. Elijah was in the wilderness of despair. That's where he was. But he needed to move on from where he was. The Lord said to him in verse 15, the first part, Go! Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. 
get out of the wilderness of despair. Secondly, God had plans for Elijah that he didn't know about. You know, people, suicide is, is off the charts today. Even we young people. And here's the, pro the problem. Just as I said, God had plans for Elijah that Elijah didn't know about. People who end their life see only the past or the present. And they have no sight of the future. They lose sight of the future. But faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things what? Not seen. Not seen. And it's a tragedy with many people, even Christians, who do that. Because what would God have accomplished through them had they been willing to walk through that valley of despair, trusting him? So in verse 15, it says, when you arrive, these are the things that, that Elijah didn't know, anoint Hazael as the king of Syria. Also, you will anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as the king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Melholah, you shall anoint as the prophet in your place. It will be that whoever escapes the sword of the Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. So God says, get moving. God says, I have plans for you that you don't know about. And then God says, Elijah, I really want you to know this. You are not alone. You are not alone. Although he felt that way. And when we get down like that, we can really feel that way. We need to trust the word of God. God says in verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed them. Sometimes when you get really down, you feel like you're the only person who has ever gone through such a terrible thing. Nobody can know how you feel. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people know exactly how you feel because they felt it. They've been through that and they've been through worse. I was just telling Kim, look, if you're really, we can get down, but we can't stay down. If you're really in a point where you're really feeling like, Everything is, you know, just gone. I, I, you're at the end of everything. And you're feeling really bad for yourself. Go down to Balboa Naval Hospital. Go down to the Veterans Hospital. And go on the ward where the veterans are there having lost half their face or three limbs. And they're just trying to rehabilitate themselves to learn how to function. And you'll stop feeling sorry for yourself. Somebody always has it harder than you. And God takes us through those times. What does he say in Corinthians? So that we can comfort what? Others with the comfort that we have received. That's part of the learning experience. The hard times of life. So this story in the life of Elijah is not a model for us to follow. About how hearing the, the still small voice of God but it is a tremendous encouragement that we are just as special to God as Elijah. I remember when I went to Israel and went on top of Mount Carmel, there's a, there's a big statue there of, a, of Elijah. And, you know, you, you just story floods your mind and somebody preached on that story when we were there. And the, the really neat thing about it was there were clouds in the district, 
distance that start got very black and they started coming that way and, and then they, they just burst out in the downpour there. And, you know, God loves you every bit as Elijah. God will never, ever leave us nor forsake us. You are not alone, Elijah. I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed, bowed the knee to Baal. He knows our highs. He knows our lows. He knows our successes. He knows our failures. He knows our sins. And he knows our victories over sins. He knows our past. He knows our present. And he holds the future in his hand. Stay tuned to his word. And follow it and you will be blessed. Proverbs 4.16. Ponder the path of your feet. And let all your ways be established. Don't turn to the right or left. Listen, the main story... The main point of the Elijah story here is God is always faithful to his promises. You can take that to the bank. He's always faithful to his promises. Psalm 28, verse 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. He will never forsake us. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. God will always supply our needs according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen. And that's why Paul said, listen, some people go through a long season of weeping. It seems like life is just one night. Paul said in Romans 8.18, keep this in mind, dear Christian, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Whatever God takes us through, for however long he takes us through it, he will not forsake us. And in the end, we will see the glory of the Lord. And all this, all this stuff here on earth will be gone. Thought it out of our mind. And we're going to live with Jesus forever. You know, when Elijah prayed, oh, Lord, just take my life. I've had it. And there's a lot of Christians. I believe in the rapture. I believe in an imminent return of Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of Christians who, who just are so dissatisfied and, you know, sickened by everything they see and the hardships of life. They go, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. To, and they're praying. And we ought to pray, right? The Bible says this, we ought to pray. But I hear a lot of young people saying that. And I want to say, what have you done for God yet? You want to go empty-handed? Young people, do something with your life for Jesus. He gave his life for you.
the song sang earlier. It's not about it, anything, you know, that we could we could receive or what, whatever in this life. It's not living life for ourselves. It's living life for the glory of God. And when you're finished, you're finished. But they let it be on God's time, right? Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Live it for the glory of God.